right in. Just going to read down to verse 12 of Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Could it be true? That's the question before us this morning. Could it be true that God came to earth? Uh, The Redeemer that we've been longing about and reading about in the Old Testament. The promised prophet, the promised priest, and the promised king. The kinsman redeemer, the one that's going to come and tell us that our sins are forgiven and show us how to live life. The king of kings and the Lord of lords. Could it possibly be true that he actually showed up on our shores and on the shores of the Sea of Galilee? It's what so many people are wondering today around the world, and it's what these disciples and these followers were wondering as well. If you look ahead or before in the text, chapter 4 verse 24 you see his fame had spread throughout all of syria and all the sick and those with various diseases and pains and those oppressed by demons and those with seizures and paralytics all came to jesus because they had the same thought that so many other people had could it be true that there is a god that has broken into this weary tired world to give us hope and to show us that there's a home And to show us how to live. Could it possibly be true? And verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain. That's why this is called the Sermon on the Mount. It's right by the shores of Galilee. It's not a very big mountain. You can climb up and down it in about 20 minutes, even if that. Uh, But he's on the top of a hill nonetheless, on the top of Sea of Galilee. And he sat down and his disciples came to him. It's this beautiful picture because you would sit down in this day and age if you had authority. And so for him to sit down, rabbis would sit down and other people would sit down. And then the other people who were listening would stand. I feel like we should do that. Like I've got a bad back doing this three times. I feel like I should sit and y'all should all stand. And then you you wouldn't fall asleep. Or at least it'd be more obvious if you did. He sat down, the disciples came to him. And in verse two, he opened his mouth and he taught them. The word of God, giving the word of God, communicating to us who he is. If you're not a believer and you want to know what God is like, look and listen to Christ. Because he is God. He's not just a good moral example. He's not just a Jewish rabbi that had a a special relationship with God. This is God incarnate who has come to earth. And if you wonder what God the Father looks like, look at Christ because he is God. I and the Father am one. 
And it's this beautiful picture. And if you're not a believer, let me just encourage you with this. Uh, be honest enough to at least work through a decision tree. I've, I've done that with other people before. Do you believe there's a higher power or not? Yes or no? Uh, is the higher power personal? Yes or no? Uh, is there one God or many gods? Okay, if that one God reveals himself, how has he revealed himself? How would you know who God is? How would you learn about who God is? Do you have to make your way to him or does he make your way to us? It's pretty easy working through a decision tree with all the world religions and all the cults to realize that Jesus is unique compared to all the others. There is no God like our God. There's not anyone even close to claiming the things that he claims. If you want to know who God is, listen to Christ. And if you want to know who you are, you have to listen to Christ as well. See, the Sermon on the Mount shows us who we really are. Because in the Old Testament, there's obviously the Ten Commandments. One, for example, is don't commit adultery, and people check off the box, and they say, yeah, I haven't done that. But Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, whoa, whoa, whoa. if you've lusted over somebody in your heart, it's like you've done it. Well, I haven't murdered anybody, but what about if, if you've been angered and you've had anger in your heart, it's like, you've, in other words, Jesus is pulling back the veil and saying, look at yourself. This is who you really are. You're more of a sinner than you could ever dream or imagine. You even know all of your sin. And at the same time, I know all of your sin and I'm willing to forgive it all, which means you're more loved than you could ever imagine that you are. The Sermon on the Mount pulls back the veil and it shows us, well, who we really are. I've got two daughters, as um, most of you know, maybe not all of you, but most of you know, I've got two daughters uh, and they're both in college. And one is at Samford in Birmingham and the other is uh, in Tuscaloosa, at Alabama. Great game last night, by the way. And, I, uh, and both of my daughters are there and they had parents weekend and they were kind of mad at us for not going to parents weekend, which Elizabeth and I had different responses to that. Uh, my response was like, parents weekend, we just got rid of you. Like, why would we come down and see you again? Like the whole point of emptying, you know, is getting you out of the nest. I think parents weekend is a new, I, I never had parents weekend. I think it's created for like the helicopter mom generation so that they can come back down and hotels can make money. Like, I just don't get the whole thing. That was my response. And then my other response was, I work on the weekends. How do y'all not know this by now? I, 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 in my entire life, your entire life, Kate Maggie, I've never been able to take a weekend off and to go to the beach or the lake. We can't, we can't do that. That's just our life. That's our calling. Elizabeth responded a little bit differently. Elizabeth said, if you wanted us at parents weekend, you should have gone to Clemson. You're six hours away. That's if Atlanta works right, which it never does. Maybe eight hours, maybe 15, depending on what's going to happen on 85 going through Atlanta. So they had all these pictures, you know, they, they were a little, we we're a little bit more confrontational. They were a little bit more passive aggressive. And they had all these pictures with them and their sorority sisters with their sorority sisters, parents, you know, sending these, but look how happy my sorority sisters look because her parents came to visit. And we looked at all those pictures. I saw a bunch of them. And uh, th this was my takeaway. I looked at all those pictures with their sorority sisters and sorority sisters, parents. And my takeaway was this. Look how old those parents look. And then I realized that's me. We're that old. 
You know, you forget. I try to avoid mirrors, but every now and then you'll catch yourself in the mirror. You're like, oh my goodness, I've gotten old. The Sermon on the Mount says, this is who you really are. This is what's really happened in your life. You see yourself now through God's eyes. Let me ask you this question. Of all the people you know in life, who's the biggest sinner that you know? If you didn't say you are, then we've got some work to do. And you you might actually fight back on that claim because you might actually say, look, look, Andy, I'm actually growing in sanctification. And actually, if I, if I laid out all of this person's sin as a litany in the list, and if I laid out all of mine empirically, actually, they have sinned more than I have. And I would say, I know, I know, perhaps, but you know, two or three of their sins, but all of your sin is revealed to you. You know, all of your sin. And so as Anton Chekhov famously said, you will not become a saint through other people's sins. You become a saint by sanctification, by a blessed defeat. We were at a high school football game this week. I love high school football. It's like the purest form of sport. You know, high school sports are before everything starts to get corrupted once you get to college. But it's still kind of a pure form of sport. And uh, we were getting killed. My team was getting killed. I won't tell you the details, but there's already a bunch of points on the board, and they scored another touchdown. And as soon as they scored another touchdown, our cheerleaders started up the chant, push them back, push them back, way back. I'm like, what are we doing? Are y'all not paying any attention to the game? We should never sing that cheer. It's not working. Like, that's the problem. When can we just say we're defeated? Like, I'd listen to a cheer that was honest. Like, high school cheerleading squad should have honest cheers. We're getting killed. Please stay around. We're getting killed. Please stay. Yeah, I was, yeah, I'm down with that. I'll cheer. I'll actually join you in that cheer. But when is it the point where we say, I'm defeated? I can't do this life on my own. I'm not going to just stand up every Monday and say, push them back, push them back, way back. It's obviously not working. So here's the first point. Happiness is a blessed defeat. Now this uh, word, verse three, blessed, is really actually fairly complex in the Greek. It's problematic in English because we say, bless your soul or bless your heart or we say a blessing or, you know, so we, we use it as this parlance that doesn't quite make sense. It actually means a resolute positional happiness, not an emotion, but you are blessed, you are happy. And it's God saying, I actually came, think about the Sermon on the Mount. What God says before he gets to all of our sin is, I actually am here to show you how to be happy, (laughs) how to have, this is a good way to translate blessedness, how to have a soul at rest. How do you live life with a soul at rest? Just like remember Mary who gave birth to Jesus, the generations will rise up and call me blessed. They'll call me the one that God's favor is upon. How do you live a life that way? Well, let's walk through these. There's two of them. I'm going to take them out of order because there's two of them that are current, present uh, oriented. Number three, or verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So that's present, active, indicative verb. Theirs is. 
And then look again at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The rest of them are future oriented, present, active, future. Uh, it's we shall be called the sons of God or we shall receive mercy. But two of them say, no, you have this established now. And both of those, the ones that say you're poor in spirit, you have the kingdom of heaven and those who are persecuted, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Both of those talks about the kingdom of heaven. That it's a current reality at this moment to live life in the kingdom of heaven. Here's why that's important. Because as John Calvin says, everybody is cherishing a kingdom in their breast, meaning in their heart. Everybody in this room, your natural default is to create your own little kingdom where you can rule. Maybe you're a mom and and, uh, you make sure everybody in that family, you rule the roost, as they say. You've created your little kingdom of the family and everybody there needs to keep you happy because if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Or maybe you have your own financial firm or your own law firm and you've created your little uh, community there and everybody better do what you say. Or maybe you have this little kingdom of comfort or a kingdom of pleasure and and you you cannot have a weekend where it's just not fun all the time. You're always doing fun things because your kingdom is comfort. Maybe uh, you have this little kingdom where you want everybody in high school to think that you're the most popular, the most funny, or the, you know, the most free going or whatever it is. You create these little kingdoms. And then once you create your little kingdom, however you have it, you get to rule. And then you also have to protect it. And you also have to make sure nobody else will tear it down. And Jesus says, actually, there is a kingdom and it's my kingdom. And every kingdom is established by defeating an enemy. And Jesus says, the enemy of my kingdom is you. So I need you to be defeated. Or as C.S. Lewis says it this way, every story of conversion is the story of blessed defeat. Every conversion starts with somebody saying, I can't do it anymore. I can't live life in my own strength. I can't live life in my own power. I don't have it in me to love my wife the way I should love my wife. I don't have it in me to to trust the Lord with my finances. I don't have it in me. It's a story of blessed defeat, of happy defeat. Every conversion is this story of happy defeat, of being willing to wave the flag and say, Jesus, I'm going to live for you and for your kingdom rather than mine. And then there's some that are future-oriented. Let's look, we're going to kind of just parade through these if we can. First of all, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, I, I sent to at least five people this week, and I probably send this verse to at least five people every week. Uh, Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is close. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. Because what we see about Jesus once he enters this world, the incarnate God, God himself, is that he mourns. He weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps over Lazarus. He weeps over the injustice. He weeps over the fatherless. He mourns with us. And it says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And uh, 25 years now of counseling people, I've learned a couple of things. And one is this, almost everybody is mourning something all the time. 
Everybody's mourning something. Everybody's grieving something. The loss of your innocence, your prodigal kids, saying goodbye to a loved one, never ever getting uh, approval from your mom or your dad, that business that fell apart, that friendship that now is broken. Almost everybody is mourning something every day. And part of the things that I've learned to do is to ask people and to ask myself, what are you grieving now? I'm not grieving anything because they think nobody's died. No, you're, you're grieving something. You're mourning something right now. Something that hasn't come true in your life or some dream that you had, which is now past or looking in the mirror and seeing, well, I'm not in my 20s anymore. Whatever it is, you're mourning or you're grieving something. Maybe you could this morning, here's a challenge. Maybe you could name what that is. I'm lonely, I'm sad, I'm frustrated with this. I'm angry. Maybe you could name what you're grieving. Then maybe... You could take that before the Lord and you could say, God, I'm mourning this. I'm grieving this. And then maybe you could let him comfort you. Because it's a relationship, it's not moral imperatives. How are you ever going to get comforted by God and know his presence will comfort you unless you name what you're mourning and you bring it before him and you ask him to help you? Blessed are the meek, verse 5. For they shall inherit the earth, gentle, meek, mild, humble. Those are the characteristics of a Christian. But that's not trading right now. What's what's trading in our culture is bombastic, over the top, claims on Twitter, tear people down, say whatever you want to get your point across. But the kingdom is filled with people who are meek, like Jesus coming in on a donkey. And you know what? Those are the ones like he who inherit the earth because Jesus was meek and gentle. This is God himself, meek and gentle and mild who refused to call down all the angels to destroy his enemies and instead took it himself on the chin and in the side and in the pierced hands and feet. But right now, Jesus is being worshiped around the globe. The meek has inherited the earth. And then it goes on to say, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This one's fascinating. All of them are fascinating. It's, this could be a whole like eight week sermon series. But this is fascinating because there's a paradox here. Those who are satisfied are those who are hungering and thirsting, not those who are full. But you're hungering and you're thirsting, and that's creating for the righteousness of God to be right with him. And that's creating the satisfaction. That's why C.S. Lewis said, all joy is longing. There's a German word for that that Lewis pointed out called senschucht, which means all joy is looking for something and longing for something. It's not the here or now. Hungering and thirsting is the longing that actually satisfies you. That's why Christians who are dying are so joyful. I can't, t- I can't tell you how many hospital rooms, hospice rooms, living rooms with a hospice bed that I've been in and the person is a couple hours, a couple days, a couple weeks away from dying. And if they're a Christian, 
they're almost always filled with joy. Why? Their body is wrecked with pain, with cancer. They don't have their facilities anymore. They have to depend on somebody else. They don't even have the pleasure of food. They've got a pick line. They don't even have the pleasure of being able to hear music or understand who's in the room so many times. But why are those people, why are Christians at that moment joyful? Here's why. Because they're longing. They're hungering. They're thirsting to be at home with God. And that longing is what creates the joy in their lives. It's paradoxical. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Again, doesn't trade real high in our economy right now. Mercy. God came to make us as Christians merciful, not right, not to win every argument, to make us distributors of mercy. You might remember Matthew chapter 8, I mean 18, where... uh, Peter came to Jesus and said, how many times do I have to forgive this guy? In other modern words, he'd basically say it this way. I mean, don't I need to have some boundaries? Uh, can't, do we have to like keep forgiving over and over again? I mean, isn't that like kind of codependent, abusive? Like, don't I need some boundaries to be able to say no, no? And Jesus says, well, look, no, you have to forgive them as much as I've forgiven you. And I forgive you 70 times seven. Let me tell you a little story to help you understand. One time there was this guy that came to the king because he owed some debts. And the king said, and he begged for mercy. And the king said, look, I'll give you some time. Yeah, go, I'll forgive your debts. That guy went out into the streets. He found every guy who owed him anything and he choked them out and he sent them to prison. And the king found out that he had forgiven his debts and he wouldn't forgive other people's debts. So he called him back in and he said, you're going to prison. How did you miss the whole point of the lesson? I was merciful to you, so you be merciful to others. And then Jesus closes that parable. Matthew 18, so it is with my heavenly, the heavenly father. He won't forgive you if you don't forgive others. What we're called to be as Christians is distributors of mercy. I was with a friend this week. He just got fired from his job. He's a pastor. Happens. Happens in churches too. And uh, he was kind of harboring bitterness over that. And he finally said, I've got to forgive my employer for what happened, for what didn't happen. He said, because not only has Jesus told me that I need to forgive them and give them mercy, but I haven't been morally neutral here. By not forgiving them, I've actually added evil to this world. That's not the way that this world's supposed to work. I'm called to be merciful as they are merciful. And it's a fundamental practice of Christianity to be a people who are merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It doesn't mean just the people that are inclined towards spirituality. No, actually, John chapter 15, you're already pure because of my word, so abide in me. Uh, It's now I've made you pure, you will see me. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. This one's interesting, and the last one, they'll make one more point and be done. Peacemakers is not passive. Like when you read this, it doesn't mean be a pushover. When it says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the Elohim, the sons of God, that means go out there and find a way to make peace, which is not passive. Sometimes that's incredibly, incredibly active. 
Because it means you might have to go to somebody and say, we're out of accord. Or I heard what you said about those other people. Or I heard the way you gossip in that community group or journey group about this person or this person. I mean, that's an incredibly active thing to do. It's not just washing over it, burying it under the rug as we're prone to do in the South. Being a peacemaker is a very active way to establish peace by calling out with truth and grace what's actually happening in an environment. And it's a beautiful thing when it happens. Fred Rogers, you know, Mr. Rogers, uh, the sweater and everything. Fred Rogers was good friends uh, with a guy that I've quoted to you many times uh, named Henri Nouwen. Henri was a uh, tenured professor at Harvard. He had made it. You know, salary for life, can never get fired, tenured professor. Henri gave it up to work with Jean Vanier and La Arch Ministries with people with disabilities. So he gave up his podium at Harvard to change the diapers of adult males and clean out their bedpans because he thought it was a better use of his life in this kingdom than to uh, get all the prestige at Harvard. Instead, he'd work with those who have major disabilities. Well, Fred got really criticized as everybody in the public forum does, and he wrote to Henri how upset he was that he was being criticized, and Henri wrote this back to him. He said, I read the article, Fred, that you sent me, and I can very well understand how much you must be hurt. It must be very painful to be confronted with a total misunderstanding of your mission and your intentions. And it's these little persecutions that come within the church that hurt the most. It was Jesus's experience as well. He's teaching them how to be a peacemaker. He goes on to say, I don't think it makes much sense to argue with the writer of the article. He speaks from a very different plane, and he won't be open to your explanations. Some criticisms we simply have to suffer and see as an invitation to enter into a deeper relationship with the heart of Jesus. It's just beautiful writing, isn't it? Look, Henry, I mean, look, Fred, I know you've been hurt. Uh... And I know this doesn't make sense. I know it's even unfair. Be a peacemaker and realize that Jesus was hurt and that was unfair as well. And view it as an invitation to engage with the heart of Jesus. Look, friends, maybe you're not a Christian. Let me just remind you again, or maybe you are a Christian and you need to be reminded. God doesn't want you to be miserable. He doesn't show us our sin just to rub it in our face. He wants you to be blessed. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to live life in that way. And so the second point, and very quickly, it won't last long, is this. Rejoicing is a gospel trait. Where happiness is a blessed defeat, rejoicing is a gospel trait. Look at verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. Esther DeWall says it this way. It is a sign of maturity to rejoice in what I have and not to weep for what I've lost or what I've never had. Sometimes we weep over the things we never even had. He says, look, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. You have the reward already. Rejoicing is a gospel trait, even when you're persecuted. Now just go to the scene. 
Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is on the hill. He's sitting down. All the disciples are around him. And he says, you're going to be, you're going to be persecuted. You know what he's thinking? I'm going to have to die for you people. He's looking at Thomas. He's thinking, you're going to doubt me. I'm going to have to show you my arm, and I'm going to have to show you my side. He's looking at Peter going, you're going to make so many mistakes, it's not even going to be funny. But Jerusalem church is going to be pastored by you, and one day you'll be hung upside down. And he's looking at James and John, the sons of Zebedee, view them like Midwesterners, you know, kind of like corn-fed kind of guys, these big guys. And John's going to be exiled. And he's looking at Andrew going, you're going to lead so many people to the Lord. Andrew in the Gospels, every time we see the disciple, Andrew was always leading people to Jesus. And he's looking at Bartholomew, and he's thinking, the whole church is going to forget that you were ever a disciple to begin with. Nobody remembers Bartholomew was even a disciple. And he's looking at all of those disciples there. And he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. Say all kinds of evil against you. Rejoice and be glad. Because even when we're persecuted, and none of us are in this room, even when we're persecuted, we can rejoice. James Argyle, two quick things, I'm done. James Argyle uh, was beheaded. He was a pastor. Cut his head off because he was preaching the gospel. And that wasn't enough. They took his head and they put it on a spike. And they put it by the Royal Mile of Edinburgh just as a lesson. Anybody who preaches, you're going to end up like this guy. Your head on a stake on Main Street. And just imagine... Uh, that was the rule of the day here. And uh, they cut off my head and they stuck it uh, on Main Street with all the other preachers that were preaching, head on a stake. That story is bad enough. This makes it worse. His son had to walk the Royal Mile every day to get to the school he attended. So every day his son had to walk back and forth and say, that's my dad right there head on the stake. They left it there for two years and he would just watch his dad dissipate. The birds had plucked out the eyes a long time ago and the flesh is falling off and his hair is getting thinner and he's just turning into a skull. He finally got depressed and he locked himself in his room for like six months and his mom would knock on the door and try to give him some porridge and a bread, a piece of cheese maybe and try to get him out. You know, they didn't, they didn't understand what was happening as much. He finally emerged six months later, the son of James Argyle, and he said, I'm going to be a preacher like my dad because great is my reward in heaven, and it's worth it. And my dad's skull stands as a light on the hill that following Christ is worth the effort. So look, friends, you can do it, right? You're going to be okay. Great is your reward in heaven. Elizabeth and I, we, uh, if you've been around Mitchell Road, you know we used to do foster kids. It was called Safe Families. We would get kids who were homeless, sometimes just for a night, sometimes for a week, sometimes for a month, sometimes for nine months. And we had a lot of kids in and out of our home. And uh, some of you know that because you helped us with it. And uh, you were the community with us when we did that. Uh, our my two favorites were uh, brother and sister Diamond and Cameron. And Cameron, I just love that kid. And uh, 
one time Elizabeth was out of the town. I don't know where she was for uh, the day or the weekend. And I had my biological kids and I had Diamond and Cameron. And I asked them to help me with a chore. Diamond and Cameron, I said, if, if you do, uh, we'll go to McDonald's. Anyone want to go to Chick-fil-A? I want to go to McDonald's and I'll get you anything you want. And uh, by the way, I, I like McDonald's every now and then as well. Like you can go to McDonald's and still be a Christian. Uh, you know, the, the fish, don't sleep on the fish fillet. It's underrated. And so they did great. And we went to McDonald's and uh, Cameron, probably six-ish, I can't remember how old he was, but he turned and he looked at me and said, I can get anything I want. And he's never had that option before. I said, you can get anything you want, Cameron. And he turned with those big eyes and he looked at the person behind the counter and he said, he had just beaming. He said, I'll take the large fry. That was it. That kid had no idea. I would have bought him everything on the menu. If he asked, I probably would have bought him the store. He just wanted the large fry and he was happy as could be. Friends, I say that to say, you have no idea how great your reward is in heaven that God has established for you. He loves you beyond what you could possibly imagine or dream. And until he takes you home, He's asked you to live in his kingdom, not your kingdom, to live in his kingdom because that's what will make you happy. And then he says, and this is how you do it. Father, we pray that you would help us to be obedient to you, to remember that happiness comes with being defeated being defeated in our morality, being defeated in our uh, ideas and what we're trying to achieve. Happiness comes with being meek. Happiness comes with hunger and thirst. Happiness comes with being persecuted. Because no matter what happens, as Jesus looked at those disciples, knowing what was about to happen in those next three years, he could say rejoice. And we pray that we would be a people that will rejoice because it's a gospel trait. It's part of who we are as Christians. Father, we pray if you need to convict us that we're not peacemakers or that we're not humble uh, or that we're not living the way that you ask us to live, we pray that you would convict us this afternoon and then help us not just to to change, but to ask you for the strength to name what we are mourning in this life so that we might be comforted. And then we pray you would set our minds and fix our eyes on Jesus and that we would go out into this week and worship and love you. We pray in Christ's name.